I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the big question, whether you're a bull or a bear, are we close to an all clear for stocks? We'll debate and discuss that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, Steve Weiss, Josh Brown, Bill Baruch. Let's check the markets. Give it a little bit back. I mean, we've had just an amazing run for stocks. There's 139 downside for the Dow. S&P giving it back about 10, a fifth of a percent. NASDAQ's a little bit lower, 447, the yield on the 10-year. But I think that's the question, Josh, we've been entertaining for the last couple of days in light of this rally. Are we all clear? Can we say that yet? It's, it's a good question. I, th- I think, though, it's important that we remember that investment decisions are, are being made every day, and there are never absolute decisions, buy stocks or not. It's always buy stocks or buy something else. And this year, you have this option to go to cash, and a lot of people did. We broke all-time records in fund flows to money markets. Here's the problem with money market funds. If rates have peaked or they're even going to peak in the next six months, and they're going to fade as they have over the last week or two, even if not at the same pace, just gradually, then that 5% is not really 5% anymore. And you're at risk to see that go back to 45 which is where it is now, then maybe 4 then maybe 3 and, and with every ratcheting down in overnight rates, that money market looks less and less attractive, especially if the economy holds up, labor market holds up, and stocks are okay. That's why, on a relative basis, you are going to see more people make the decision that it may not be all clear to buy stocks, Judge, but it's clear enough that I can add to equity exposure after a year in which billions of dollars went into money markets. You raise a really good point, um, because Steve Weiss, Barclays today, Speaking about the competition that has existed elsewhere, it's been well documented. We've talked about it for a year. Josh just highlighted the cash side. There's also the bond side of that, where Barclays today says, quote, stocks are more appealing than bonds at these levels. We expect the world economy to slow in 24, but in a fairly benign fashion, with low peak jobless rates and further declines in inflation in the major economies. This is not an outright soft landing, but it is distinctly soft-ish. Are stocks now more appealing in bonds for the first time? Can we make that statement, Weiss, in, in, in a long time? Yeah, I, I think they're getting that way. Not entirely. I mean, you know, we've seen the 10-year major move, but the two-year, the short end of the curve still, you know, gives you, gives you a good return, return for the short end. But, but l- let's classify it. It's not as if everybody goes into bonds because they think it's a better, a better return. So there are two segments. So the ones that go in there, they go there to hide. And I did some of that. You know, I'm not happy. I'm not, I'm not getting up every day to generate, a, you know, 5% return on two-year money. So I did it as a place to hide. I thought it was a good return and a good place to hide. That segment is most likely to come back into the market at the right time. Then there are the others who say, you know what, I can live with 5% on a treasury or 6, 7, 8% if I'm willing to take a little risk in the balance sheet. And uh, I can be there for a long time. After all, actuarial uh, you know, projections for endowments are 7 to 8%, right, typically. So that's fine. So if you have more of that capital, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that's going there to hide, it will come in. I think yeah. the market's okay through the end of the year, data dependent. 
So if we continue to see weakening data and it accelerates to the downside, then that's a different story. But right now, you know, the baseline story is the Fed is done. And not okay. only that, the market's taking care of itself in terms of rates coming down. Weiss, you grab, a, you grab a little drink there, give your voice a rest. I'm going to go to Bryn for a moment um, because Bryn Weiss sets this up perfectly where he says, you know, this is the Fed is done. That's what this rally is all based on, isn't it? The, the narrative is the Fed is done. The risk in all of that, of course, is that the markets made the mistake before of getting too dovish. Is it doing it once again? Probably so. I think I think one of the bigger drivers, though, in, or in addition to the narrative that the Fed has done, is the 10 years gone from, you know, close to five to four or over five to four and a half. Right. And so you've seen that really big um, that really big sell off in bonds, which has been just like lit a fire on pretty much stocks and aggregate. I think that the Fed can be done. And what's not priced in, though, is higher for longer. And when we don't know that, because I know people are saying, oh, yeah, we can handle three or four percent inflation. But Jay Powell has been crystal clear that he wants two. And we're still incredibly far away from that. And so I think still that unknown of higher for longer is what will potentially trip up a, a rally much higher than this. I also think that we're going to continue to see, you know, very, very large treasury auctions. And I think that that will continue to actually take a more of a front seat than is the Fed done or not done and what happens on the longer end of the treasury market. You know, talking a second about cash versus bonds, you know, I think that bonds are a way to grow poor safely. And if you think about the trillions that went into money markets this year, I think it's six, six trillion or over six trillion now. I think what's interesting about cash right now versus bonds is you have about a 90 basis point pickup versus money markets versus the 10 year. And so even if the Fed cuts rates, you're still at a higher, higher return of cash than bonds. And so I actually think that that money market dollars will be a little bit stickier than people think because you're going to get a higher yield for longer than going um, longer on the curve. Yeah, but it's been a busy week uh, already with Fed speak. Uh, it's going to continue that way. There were 20 speakers in all this week, including Lisa Cook from the Fed Board of Governors, Steve Leisman. She's making comments as we speak, I think. What's the what's the message here from Lisa Cook? Uh, Scott, thanks. She says that uh, a soft landing is possible, but not assured. Uh, and she defines a soft landing, continued disinflation, along with a strong labor market. She sees the mark, the uh, uh, risk right now is definitively two-sided uh, between tightening too much and tightening too little. And she spends a good amount of time talking about tightening too much. And she says she's watching whether what's happening with small business and the difficulty getting credit, along with what's happening in the housing sector, are warning signs of potential broader stress in the economy. Uh, she's watching for risks of renewed global economic shocks. She cites oil prices, geopolitical tensions, and European and Chinese uh, economic slowdowns. Points out with many central banks tightening, each may, quote, need to do a little bit less, uh, if that's the case. A couple comments on the economy. She says global supply chains have largely recovered. Uh, slowing rent, she expects to feed into slowing housing inflation and bring down overall inflation over time, so she's kind of upbeat on that. Labor demand and supply, she says, coming into better balance. Uh, and she notes surveys of it being easier to hi hire and uh, find new workers. Um, 
And then she's encouraged by strong labor productivity. I wonder if that's a story we haven't talked enough about. The past two quarters have been pretty strong. If they're sustained, it's going to help. Um, Scott, I'm just, take a quick look at the uh, uh, probabilities here, which you see we're no longer talking about hike probabilities. All we're talking about now are cut probabilities, and they're pretty substantial. 35% for March, 68% for May, which is not that far away. Um, I'm wondering if the data, Scott, has now given some of the doves on the committee the opportunity, maybe the courage, maybe the backing and the support to come out and talk and maybe give a more dovish outlook on policy now. I feel like, Steve, we've, we've definitely turned a corner on that front, and it's obvious from Ms. Cook's comments that she does nothing to upset the, narr the narrative that we've put forward for, the, for why we've had this rally in the first place, that the Fed is done. She basically sounds like she's saying, I'm done, unless something tells me I need to do something else. I think that's a good read, Scott. I think that she's, and, and, and I think what's really important about what you just said is the idea that they're not pushing back. We'll see. She's not the only one out there. She may have had a more dovish predilection before. Um, but remember, Scott, it hasn't been really easy to discern who the hawks and the doves are on the committee during this time period when the Fed was doing those big 75 basis point hikes and trying to convince the market of higher for longer. Um, it's just one inflation report. If we get another one or another one, it's going to be hard, harder to both hold back the dam, I think, of, of, of Fed officials who may want to cut, but also the market's pricing of it. So we'll have to listen to see if there's any pushback, and maybe we'll get some this afternoon. Yeah, good stuff, Steve, as always. I appreciate it very much. That's Steve Leisman, our senior economics reporter. So, Bill Baruch, I turn to you. I mean, I go back to James Gorman today. 3%, forget 2%, uh, 3% inflation, quote-unquote, acceptable. Uh, he was speaking to CNBC Asia overnight. Are we done? We're not done. Is 2% absolutely necessary? My personal view is no. So he thinks 3% is a very acceptable outcome. I go back to the top question that we asked today. Are we all clear? I think we're close enough to what Josh said. And I think you, what you said, too, was we turned a corner here. And, and the way I like to look at it is, is as everybody's referencing the money and the money market funds, I, I call it the 5% free lunch. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And I think that money's going to come out of here. And I like using the metaphor of, of a frog in boiling water and turning the heat up. The market, we've had this thrust higher in the market. And I think that's the closest you're going to get to an all clear. And we're going to continue to find, I think, incremental gains higher. And it's going to be slower and slower. The bears will slowly capitulate. And more and more money will slowly start to come off the sidelines. And I think at some point you're going to see a big rush in and everybody's going to capitulate and we're going to be at record highs. The nice thing I like right here that also uh, say, uh, serves to point to all clear is the VIX is down 40% from the highs. It's down 20% month to date. And the institutions that actually move the market, they can actually put on more leverage now with, with lower volatility and they're going to continue to grind this thing higher. I mean, if, if the risk is that, you know, the, the market has made the mistake of being too dovish before, people like Lisa Cook, don't upset that. Um, the wolf today speaks to the idea of the underestimating of the lag effects that are in their minds yet to come um, and the likelihood of Powell and company, as they suggest, and that's what they call uh, the, the Fed, to be, quote, higher for longer. I think it's an easier story. I, I really, uh, truthfully, I know we had a lot of Fed speak this week. I just do not think the game right now, between now and the end of the year, six weeks left, is parsing every speech given by every Fed head. I just don't think that's what's going on. I think it's a classic chase for performance that we're setting up for. Look at the news this week. Schoenfeld, one of the most successful uh, prop traders, hedge funds, arguably in the world, laying off 15% of, of their uh, staff. Why are they doing that? They're up 1%. Do you know what the NASDAQ 100 is up this year? 
It's up 45%. Like, this is what's going on right now. We had this record race to the sidelines. We had trillions of dollars going to short-term bonds, money market funds. And look at what the indices are poised to do for year-end. These numbers are distressing if you have a job in asset management. And I know we all like to believe that everybody perfectly allocates every penny under management based on fundamentals, but it's just not true. The agency problem writ large on Wall Street is that you need to perform. That's You need to sing for your supper. And that's what you're going to see. That's what we're setting up for. And you could stop telling me about the Magnificent Seven because you have 82 stocks in the S&P 500 that are up more than 20% this year. It is a very good year for a lot of stocks. Not every stock, a lot of stocks. And if you have a benchmark, that's what you're focused on. You're not focused on Lisa Cook, whose name I just heard for the first time today, by the way. Steve, sorry, I, this is what I do. I just I keep it real. I think that's what people are talking about right now. No, I, I, look, I think that's Ben Weiss, the, the story here, um, positioning or lack thereof, frankly, which is why, you know, you've got people in seasonality and you've got people like Dr. Jeremy Siegel down at the Wharton School told me yesterday on closing bell. Yeah, five, six, seven, maybe another 10 percent. Look at that. Maybe sm- another 10 percent. He's about to go off. Look at that smirk. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to tell whether it's no, the perpetual no, I, smirk or if I it's just I think he agrees with me, but I'm moment. not 100% sure. And even Let's, if he did, he wouldn't tell you he did. <laughs> Weiss, please, we digress. No, no, this, this, this is my Josh smirk, and, and I do agree with <laughs> We Josh. digress. Uh, the, uh, yeah, I've got a different smirk for everybody in the show. This is the Josh. <laughs> there, yeah, Look, there. I do think we can go up. You've got two things in the way. Uh, you know, as I said, uh, you do have data coming out. You'll get unemployment. Uh, the first Friday in December. Let's see what that is. There's no reason to believe the trend's not going to continue because in line with my view of the lagging effect of the tightening cycle, I would expect unemployment to tick up. And I would expect there to be, you know, not some pressure on wages, but not wages going up. And then you'll get on the 12th of December, you'll get CPI followed by PPI. So those are really, in my view, the only two things that can stand in the way. There's nothing any Fed member is going to say that hasn't been said before ad nauseum. And at this point, there is a big chase for performance. Uh, hedge fund Schoenfeld, I believe, is market neutral. So you can never really look for them to put up great, great numbers. Uh, but 1% is disappointing. And they do constantly get rid of people. You know, they recycle traders. But, uh, but look, it is set up for continued rally. The only question is what's going to rally. I still think it's going to be the ones that have been rallying. If you take a look at CAT today, you take a look at DEER today, those stocks only move on major market moves. Mm-hmm. On days like today, they could be the weakest. So the market's not convinced that we're ready for the economy. For, they're not convinced of two things. They're definitely not convinced broadly that the economy is as solid as the bulls would like you to think. That's just not the case. I don't believe that. All right. So and let me do, let's on the other off. side, there's no hold on, convincing. Hold on, hold on. I'm going to interrupt you because yeah. I want to move. I want to move the ball around. Um, okay. I'm going to play off what you said. Of what's going to rally is is what has been rallying. Baruch thinks that Uber obviously is going to keep rallying, um, which it is again today because you bought more. Yeah. Tell us why. Yeah. I mean, last week we bought more. I like this. I like the name, and I think 
thinking outside the box. What else are they going to bring to the table over years? They got 130 million users, and so they're, they're building a network, and they're expanding out to freight, that final mile, but let's really point the direction at, they are a profitable company now, and I think they'll continue to, to earn profits, gain profits, and they're a platform company, similar to, if you look at it, like a, like a Netflix could be, or was, and, and, and really driving things. I, I love the name Mover, and I think they'll continue to be make, growing at market share. I mean, Josh, you, you do too. Goldman does By the way, too. Scott, Gold I added Tuber also. Okay, all right, good stuff. Good to Just know. Thank reference. you for that. Goldman says, by the way, Amazon, Meta, Uber, and Alphabet are the top picks not only into year-end, but Josh into 2024. This is, well, so personally, this is my biggest single position, as I've said on the show many times. I've been buying it for years, lowering my average cost. I've been very wrong in the stock. Now I'm very right. I'm not selling a share. I've added to it uh, in, in recent months. And the thing with Uber is, I was talking about this when it was a $90 billion market cap. It's the only one of the major platform companies that wasn't $100 billion yet. And in fact, most of them are in the trillions. Uber was not as profitable. That's what held it back. That is no longer the story. There's, there's an explosive cash flow story coming to Uber in the coming uh, year or two that a lot of people still aren't expecting. That's the thing that's fundamentally changed. It's not rallying on the Fed, okay? There's a fundamental difference here versus last year, the year before, and that's why I'm staying with it. Yeah. Bryn, uh, speaking of things that have been rallying, Microsoft, new record high today. Dan Ives yep. goes to 425 from 400. Um, they announced this new chip yesterday. They think it's going to take on in NVIDIA. They'll still be reliant, obviously, on the NVIDIA chips for now. Um, but they have high hopes, and others do as well. You know, Microsoft just continues to execute. And if you look at, um, we'll say the six names, Google, um, Amazon, um, Apple, Microsoft, um, Meta, Microsoft is the only one outside of Meta slightly that's actually making all-time highs above those July levels. And so I just think that it's going to continue to be a beneficiary of a flow of funds. And that as people want to play AI, I feel like a lot of people think Microsoft is maybe more consistent than NVIDIA, because obviously NVIDIA is making the chips, the GPUs. But I just think this is great leadership, great management. They're not having optimization anymore. And so I think money will continue to flow in that way. And it'll continue to be a great performer in 2024, as long as the market holds up. Bill, you need to get bigger in Microsoft. It's your sixth largest position. You've looked elsewhere for uh, heft. Yeah. If, if you will. What about here? I, I mean, I love the name. It's, it's been, it's, it's tough because it's a finite amount of capital to allocate. And I really love Adobe and Synopsys. I think they have a little more oomph. Microsoft has a great place in our portfolio. It's in our concentrated fund where I own no more than 10 stocks too. And so it's, I, I mean, I think it's really about a finite you know, move of capital. It is breaking out. I might see myself buying more next week. All right, we'll take a look at something that's breaking down. Uh, certainly not out. At Cisco, it's our chart of the day today. It's down 12%. The guidance is the issue. Jim Labenthal, uh, he owns it, joins us, um, because we like to hear from the committee members who are in these positions when they have big moves. Uh, so, Jim, what's the take here? Yeah, well, the, the guidance was reduced as far as earnings per share goes uh, by about 4% for the current year that we're in. The stock's down 11% plus. And so clearly the market is has a question in front of it. Uh, and that question is whether the slowdown that has resulted in guidance being reduced is greater than the company thinks, or is this the start of a long slide down for Cisco that might be reminiscent of where Intel was five years ago? I bring up Intel because Intel up until five years ago had performed from a share price point of view very similarly to how Cisco has performed to date. 
Now, having framed the question that way, I'm going to suggest the following. One, from a competitive point of view, I think Cisco is just way too diversified to be threatened uh, in, in a global way that Intel was threatened. It's got hardware, it's got software, it's got the Splunk acquisition. There's a lot of things going for Cisco. In terms of is the slowdown worse than what's expected, I, I think you know, Scott, and most people who watch the show know that I'm a bit more bullish on the economy and its ability to now uh, do nicely with the Fed moving to the sidelines than maybe the market thinks overall. So my, my answer to the question is, I, I think this uh, drawdown today is way overblown. And I want to point out one more thing. In the 10 years that I've owned the stock, this is only the fifth example of a double-digit decline in Cisco. The last time it happened was a year and a half ago after a similar disappointing guidance. What happened in the 12 months after that decline was that Cisco was up 17.8% while the S&P 500 was up 7.5%. The conclusion that I'm drawing from this is this is a buying opportunity in a high-quality company. Yeah, I mean, the Intel comparison, I don't know, that feels a little specious to me. I mean, we're talking about a company that had a dramatic decline in market share relative to its rivals. I don't think we're necessarily talking about the same thing in, in this instance. We're more talking about just, you know, macro potential weakness uh, impacting the ability of, of this company on the enterprise. M more on that line than, than what, what was plaguing Intel and in many respects what still does. So, Scott, you actually make the point that I was trying to make. Maybe you make it more eloquently than, than, than I do. Um, I don't think there is a systemic competitive issue with Cisco the way there was five years ago with Intel. The share prices, though, I mean, the reason I bring it up as an investor is I do remember Intel for the several years before 2018 being a darling the way Cisco has been for the last 10 years for me. So believe me, I'm with you. I don't think this is Intel five years ago. I think it's very diversified. I think it's the product leader, and I just don't see any competition that way. But your point is whether this is an enterprise spending slowdown greater than the 4% implied EPS uh, reduction. I don't think it is. Okay. I think all that's happening here is clients, uh, their customers have said, hey, we want to slow down for a second. While we're not sure what the effects of the rate hikes and, and geopolitical uh, situations are, we want to slow down for a second. My whole thesis to you, Scott, and to the viewers has been that this is a moment in time that's going to pass, both for the overall macro economy and for Cisco systems. All right. Got it. I uh, appreciate you being here. Jimmy, all in. I'll see you back on the desk. Jim Labenthal. Okay. All in Jim. All in Jim. Yeah, Jimmy, all in, all in Jim. You get the point. Uh, hey, Weiss, you just tell me you bought uh, some Taiwan Semi uh, this morning. I did. I, I, Give me I the details, please. I bought it this morning, actually. Um, yeah, so, so number one, she's in town talking to Biden, and of course she can't believe what he says, but he said, we're not going to fight a hot, hot war, cold war with anybody. And I do think they're not going to invade Taiwan. But more importantly, what a lot of people don't realize is that Taiwan Semi has a lot of very meaningful manufacturing facilities in China. But as to what Bryn just said about Microsoft and their AI chip, they're not going to build fabs. Guess who is going to produce it for them? It's going to be produced by Taiwan Semi. So as you roll over to 24 numbers, you're looking at a stock that's selling about 14 times, which is very cheap given their growth. Earnings will go from whatever, 30 to 40 bucks in 24. So I think it's cheap. I think it's been somewhat de-risked 
thankfully from the only good thing to come out of it, Russia and Ukraine, China doesn't want to be in the Russia position. So, so I think it's, uh, it's pretty reasonable. It's not a really, it's not going to be a huge stock like Microsoft, which is my biggest position, but I think mm -hmm. I can do pretty well in it. All right, good stuff. And real quick, uh, Palo Alto. Josh, I know you don't own it. You own Crowd, um, yeah. CrowdStrike, but this stock's lower. I just want to touch it. I don't want to uh, forget about it before we take a break. Yeah, look, it, this is a tough. This is a tough business. You're closing huge enterprise deals. This is not hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat. Closing one small customer at a time and hoping it adds up to a big number. You're literally talking to Fortune 500 and government at this level. And some deals don't close in the quarter that you hope they would close, thus invalidating guidance that you've given before. And you've got a lot of immaturity amongst short-term traders. Well, do they beat by a penny or miss by a penny? Okay, great. I'm going to wipe out the whole position. If you're an investor, you have to see through that. If you saw through that last quarter with CrowdStrike, this quarter you were rewarded with a 52-week high. So I think with Palo Alto, the trend is up. And in any given quarter, they may make or miss someone else's expectations. You have to think like an investor, not a swing trader, if that's what your game is. This has been like everybody's favorite stock. So we'll keep it's our fine. eye on that. It's fine. So let's do this. We'll take a break. Uh, when we come back, we've got some consumer names in Bill's portfolio that are, well, one's in, one's out. I'll tell you what they are next. We're back, so let's talk some consumer, okay, Bill? Yes. Uh, you bought Target. Yeah. Tell me. Yeah, we added Target. I like the report. I, I think this is finally a turn in, in a big name that's just been bludgeoned and beaten down. I, I think there's a potential here. Go to $200. Now, sales a little soft. I mean, the earnings, though, I mean, they're, they've been able to get rid of inventory. Knowing that they've been able to get rid of inventory, a comment from Walmart today was this deciding factor that I like. Talked about deflation. They're going to be restocking inventory. This actually could be a tailwind to profit margins uh, in the coming quarters. That's what Stephanie Link was thinking, too, um, who, who took away from the report uh, cost-cutting, margins holding. Um, and that's the principal reason why you like this, despite the fundamental slowdown uh, in the consumer that, that they cited. Yeah, I, and I agree with the fundamental slowdown in the consumer. I'm actually really worried for, for November and December and the data that we get in January and February. But I think that we once we get through that, and so this isn't the bottom 10 of, of, our, of our portfolio of 30 names. I like to be able to add to it. But when I'm looking at names to start building a position in there from a positioning standpoint, I, I hope there's a tailwind here and, and I'm able to build it and really make some good gains. Okay, so if you're concerned a little bit about the consumer going into November, you know, December. Why'd you sell McDonald's? Well, see, McDonald's sold off pretty sharply with, with the under undertow of the weight loss drug, Ozempic. And, you know, although they're, they're saying that it's not going to affect them, it's not going to affect Pepsi and others, but here's the thing. I mean, it, it sold off sharply. It's about 20, down 20%. And a it's lot, yeah, a lot of other things sold sold down, too. And, and it's rebounded a bit. And, and I think here's a good to, a good point. I don't like the chart as much as there's once I did. I love the franchise model. I love that you can start to see, you know, consumers trade down to McDonald's. But if, if the market, if a, if a stock sells off like this and has a rebound. It's sometimes a good point to just take a step back and watch a few rounds. I, I like the stock, I like the name, and I may add it back in a couple quarters from now, or a couple I just, of weeks from now. I'm just going to get Josh's take on it just because, you know, 
you could easily say, if, insert Shake Shack here, yeah. and you didn't because you still own it. And maybe, you know, there, there are a lot of stocks that got caught up in, that, in, the, in the weight loss downdraft in, in, in those names. What's, what's your view there? So I think for the whole group, it's more than just the weight loss downdraft, which will be uh, a headline risk for these companies throughout the, the rest of the year. There are going to be more approvals uh, in 2024 than there were in 2023. Yeah, and more companies with new drugs. You know, and we, we're not we just talking Pfizer right. trying to get in on the action. So we're, so we're, we're not just talking about off-label uses of um, diabetes drugs. We're talking about actual weight loss drugs at this point. So it actually becomes more acute. And we could see 20 million people uh, on these drugs, like in very short order. So it is a headline risk. I don't think it's existential risk, uh, but definitely it's going to rock these names. The bigger problem is that over the last three years, they have all, all gotten away with substantial price increases on everything they're selling. That will not be repeated this year with inflation falling. And you're not getting that much more slack in the labor market. So their costs will remain high. Their ability to pass on higher costs for a fourth year in a row will be diminished. It's just not going to be an easy year for that whole group. So I'm not focused there, not looking for opportunities there. I don't think other people should be either. Bryn, what about the consumer? I mean, if you take, you know, Target was cautious looking at the holiday. Walmart, quote, we're more cautious on the consumer. You know, Macy's expressed similar concerns. Burberry shares down big, quote, unlikely to achieve previous stated revenue guidance for the full year. We still have major issues, especially in the apparel space. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the consumer and the person with the job is the same person. So as, as long as jobs are plentiful, the consumer will be fine. I do think they're getting more specific on what they're buying. And whereas Walmart, to me, they said October was weak, but then they said November was strong. So I think the jury's still out. I do think between Walmart and Target, Target's definitely a higher-end consumer. And I think Walmart is encroaching on them. So if I were gonna go into next year and buy one of them, I think Walmart is more immune. But I still think we're in such a contradictory environment because everyone's like, soft landing, new bull market, yeah, the consumer we're not so sure about, and credit card debt is at an all-time high. And so I just think we're in this like new landscape where if we get any hiccup in the market and job unemployment even ticks up a bit more, I think that consumer is going to be really stretched and things could get ugly pretty quick. What about you, Weiss? I, I just have no bit for the consumer. I mean, we see all the numbers going down. Uh, we see the trends going down. Uh, it's just not the place to be. You know, you can't make the bet that employment is going, unemployment can continue to rise, that you've had a lag effect on the economy, that things are weakening, and buy the consumer stocks regardless of where they are, because the revisions can just be stronger. So Target, it's a relief quarter, but the sales numbers are still not good. The guidance in terms of the economy still weren't good. So I, just, it's, I think you can make money elsewhere. Why go there if you don't have to have a waiting? All right, let's get the headlines now with Christina Partzinevelos. Hey, Christina. Hi, Scott. The United Auto Workers Union ratified a new labor deal with General Motors. These are the first workers at one of Detroit's big three automakers to sign on to the agreement. Ford and Stellantis workers are still voting on whether to approve their deals. GM's vote secures a new agreement with the union after six weeks of coordinated strikes.
Federal authorities in New York seized counterfeit merchandise worth more than $1 billion in the largest ever seizure of its kind. Two people were charged with trafficking knockoff handbags, shoes, and other luxury items out of multiple locations, including a storage unit. The men could face up to 10 years in prison if they are convicted. Chinese President Xi Jinping said that the country will send new pandas to the United States as a sign of friendship between the two nations. There are only four pandas left in the United States after, the th after three at the National Zoo were sent back to China just last week. The gesture came after the two world leaders met face-to-face -face for the first time in a year yesterday at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. Possibly pandemonium at the zoo. Scott? I was thinking panda diplomacy, but yours is better. Christina, thanks. I'll see you on Closing Bell. Thanks. That's Christina Partsinevelis. All right, coming up, betting on a biotech breakout. That sector on pace for its third straight negative year. Wow. One Wall Street firm, though, sees a clean bill of health ahead. We discuss in our call of the day. We'll do it in two minutes. Welcome back. Biotech ETF, the XBI. It's trying to snap a three-month losing streak. How about this call from BMO today, Bryn? Despite underperformance, we see significant opportunity for investors to realize gains over the next six to 12 months. Why? Increased M&A, declining interest rates, and continued delisting of negative enterprise value companies. What do we think? makes all the sense in the world. I mean, I sold XBI back in October. I'd held it for, I think, a couple of years. I, I threw in the towel. Everyone, I think, has been waiting for years for small cap biotech to bounce back. But really, it hasn't. And I would have wanted to see more of a move with this rates coming down. And so I think the market's saying that's too early. I think where you want to put your money, though, is more in biopharmaceuticals. You're going to continue to see allocators putting money into the Lilies, the Novos. I own AbbVie. And so I think the larger biotechs are still a, be a better way to play than XBI, which is going to be more small cap, equal weight companies, which are not going to make money. And so I haven't seen them, this, this ETF really move with the rate with the rates falling. And so I would still stay to the side on this one. Bill, you got AbbVie also, Amgen, UNH. They remain most confident, they being BMO, in Vertex and Regeneron. Well, I think here's the thing with the bigger names that I'm owning. I like the cash flow. And as you look into year two of a bull market, so this they're looking at the rates, which I agree with. And in year two of a bull market, which we are in right now, we're heading into the turn of the calendar year, is, is healthcare. It tends to outperform along with financials. So they're really setting up of where else can they be you know, looking at focusing on other than tech. And that's what my I'm looking at, too. I added IQV recently, life sciences spot. And I think with that right there, I mean, when you start seeing more money flow into healthcare, the life sciences. Or should be able to start to trend higher a bit too. Weiss, you, you, I mean, everybody knows by now you're, you're profitable healthcare, uh, quote unquote, uh, Humana yeah. United Health. But what about this call specifically from BMO that biotech's going to have a comeback and a good one? You know, there's, they're sort of playing the odds. I mean, you pointed out this is the third year of a down biotech market. Prior to this, since the ETFs were created, and it's not 50 years ago, maybe 20 jobs. John, Josh is our show's historian, so maybe he knows know the year with greater clarity. But it, the downturn has always been for a year in the past. So playing the odds, it seems to make sense. But you have to play the ETFs because as, as an investor, unless you're going to own a basket of these, the risk is too great. So to risk manage it, 
That's what you have to do. Now, if rates do go down, that's fine. But you also need the IPO and secondary market to open up because that's where they generate their funding. They're not going to get loans for a company that's losing money, number one. Number two, doesn't have a drug that's ready to go commercial, in other words, through the FDA. So I still think it's going to be pretty challenging. Again, I think there are better places where you can put your money. All right. You got a take? I think you could buy them both, IBB, XBI. They're both retesting those lows from early 2022. Uh, one of them's in a 30% drawdown. The other one's in a 60% drawdown. Uh, I think they're, they're great bounce candidates, stocks that have been under selling pressure all year. At a certain point, there's just nobody left to give up on them. And that's really all you need. I don't think you need a positive fundamental catalyst um, to get some buying back here in the group. It's going to happen. That retest looks like it's successful. Hey, guys, we're going we're gonna to go to break real quick, but uh, can we throw up the NAS uh, if we could or the Qs, whatever you can get up quicker, um, because we're positive on the, uh, the NASDAQ at the moment. Uh, Apple's about to put 190 on the board. Mm-hmm. Microsoft all-time high again today, up 1.5%, 375. NVIDIA moving back closer to $500 a share. That's three-quarters of 1%. How about Intel today up near 5%? AMD up 2%. Alphabet up 1.5%. Up next, Mike Santoli. He'll join us for his Midday Word. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli <clears throat> joining us now with his with his midday word. Um, you know, I guess a, a slowing economy is you know perversely good for stocks, at least in the moment. What it's not good for is obviously crude, which is now under seventy three. Um, Energy is the worst sector today, and we haven't talked about it yet, Mike, on today's yeah. show. What are your thoughts here? Well, I would say, first of all, a slowing economy is definitely good for stocks to the degree it's just a slowdown from strong levels and not something worse. Uh, crude looks like it's a combination of, obviously, it's, it's an oversupplied market in the short term. You just see this persistent weakness. It gets us back to the range before the uh, Ukraine invasion, really. So I think there are obviously demand kind of concerns in the back of, uh, of traders' minds. But uh, to me, more than anything, it's, it's not really telling us anything special that we can't see in the other numbers, except for, you know, production is near records uh, everywhere. But, uh, you know, but OPEC and and it seems as if there's just enough out there. So I'm not too worried about that as a signal, but it does fit into the overall narrative, which is, you know, we spent months hoping for disinflation and peak yields and peak Fed. And then when the market goes up 10 percent in 13 trading days, you're going to look for something else to worry about. And now yeah. the thing to worry about is signs that we're going to soften up too much in the economy going into next year. It remains to be seen. Yeah. I mean, at, at some point, you, you're going to believe that, you know, bad news, so to speak, is in fact bad news for yeah. the market. I think you rightly suggest it's the degree, I guess. Of, of what that bad news truly is. That's right. And just less good news is what the market wants. Not and, and really, I think bad news is always bad news for the market. It's a really tight window of time in a certain part of the cycle where you really are saying, uh, you know, bad news is good news. And that's only when the Fed's looking for an excuse to slow down. At this point, when the hurdle is high for them to tighten anymore, you don't want to wish uh, for the economy to worsen. No, no, not at all. I think we're, we're when we say it, we are speaking of, you know, we're thinking about what the Fed wants. That's um, right. Not in the broader exactly. sense of yeah. we don't we don't want, we want the economy to 
to, to slow too much, people to get hurt, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I'll see you uh, uh, a little bit later. Mike, yep. thank you. That's Mike Santoli. Bryn, you want to comment here on what's happening in energy? I mean, the primary reason are inventory increases. Secondary is China demand concerns. So I'm going to use a Fed, a Fed word. I think that's transitory. So I think, I mean, you're seeing about a 3% down on Diamondback, on XOP. I mean, you're seeing a really big sell-off today on those inventory increases. So I think it's transitory. I think it's actually probably a good time to step in and get some of these names with this. I think it's an overreaction. Okay. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. Uh, there is news regarding Roblox today. Bit of a reality check of sorts. There's the stock down near 5%. The annual investor day. Uh, that's what's going on. We'll talk to Bryn about that stock, which she owns next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. Welcome back. I want to talk some roadblocks uh, on the back of the investor day. Uh, stock, as I showed you going into the break, was lower. So, Bryn, you have a small position, small, uh, reiterated by today, B of A, quote, becoming more investable. Roblox says neutral. I mean, um, JP Morgan says neutral. Target goes to 37 from 33. The B of A target's 54. So they see, a, you know, much, much more upside here yeah. in the stock. What about you? It's up 30 percent in a few months. Yeah, so, so if you go back a year and a half, this, this stock has been in this really clear channel between 30 and 40. So you could buy this stock multiple times at 30 and sell it at like 38 to 40. I sell calls when it gets up to close to 40, but it's been in that really strong channel. And so until it technically breaks out of that, which I don't know what that's going to take, they continue to grow all of their key metrics, bookings, daily active users, hours spent by 20% consistently each quarter. And so they're still not EPS positive, so maybe that's what it's gonna take. But I think that solid trend is a really good investable way to play it, to buy it at close to 30, sell it at, 30, at 38 to 40, and then just play that channel until I think it will break out because this is not just a gaming company. This is a social media company. This is an advertising company that continues to get stickier and stickier globally, not just in the U.S. So I'm definitely sticking with hey, it. Hey, Bryn, quick question yeah. for you. I have already lost money in this stock. So speaking as a Roblox veteran, they have a great product and they have a very loyal uh, user base, and that's great. They're not a very well-run company, and they're not good at making money. They did $2 billion in revenue last year and lost a billion dollars on that. I could do that. So do you have some sense that that's changing? Uh, are the analysts starting to gain confidence that they actually are finding a path toward more consistent profitability? Well, I mean, they're obviously spending, you know, their their ecosystem is that they're paying the developers, which I'm sure you're very well, well, well aware of, which is a really big spend for them to pay these outside developers to continue to create content. Also, they're spending a lot, right? They moved into Japan where growth has been 100%. I mean, Dave Bazuki's founder, CEO, um, I think it's actually well run, but they're just still not making money. They're a high growth company. I think ultimately they've got to get earnings positive. And when you listen to the call, they're very aware of what the market thinks. And so it's just like one of these names that's like stuck in that 
I think, 30 to $40 range. And it's not, as I said earlier, it's not going to move out of that, I think, until you have a catalyst of positive earnings. All right. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. This Saturday marks the premiere of the Las Vegas Grand Prix as part of a new CNBC documentary on the business of Formula One. Sarah Eisen examines the league's biggest and boldest gamble, Las Vegas. And that final racing layer is what we're actually pouring right now. It's a really, really dense asphalt that makes sure that when the drivers are going around the corners, the, the turns, the asphalt doesn't ripple. Like, is it the same track in all the F1 races? It's specially designed for Las Vegas. Our 3.8 miles of track is actually public right-of-way. So vehicles drive on it. You and I can drive on the track after it's built. There's a lot riding on this. Unlike every other race, F1 and Liberty Media are the sole promoters putting on the race here. No middleman. It's requiring a pretty significant investment on your part, north of half a billion dollars, right? Way north of half a billion. And more than, more than any other promoter has, will have spent, by far. What does it cost? Oh, we'll be in it for 600 million, at least. Okay, for more access into the world of F1, check out Inside Track, the business of Formula One, premieres tonight, 8 o'clock Eastern on CNBC. We'll do Final Trades next. All right, three Eastern closing bell, Liz Young, Eric Jackson on his latest tech moves. Lindsey Hans, the president of Merrill Wealth Management. New guest for us, excited about that, Joe Terranova. We'll see you then. We'll do finals. Bryn, you're first. Um, Diamondback, take advantage of the sell-off. It was just at 170 a month ago. It's got a 10% free cash flow yield and one of the best operators in the EMP space. Weiss. Taiwan Semi gave you the reasons before. Okay, give me a name. Adobe. Siri, just watching, no position yet. All right, you let us know if, in fact, there becomes one. I'll see you on Closing Bell. The exchange starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report disclaimer.